If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, and once again we'll read uh, the entire psalm, uh, but we're this morning going to focus on that piece of the psalm that takes up the nature of man. Uh, Last week we focused on the nature of the universe, this morning the nature of man, and next Sunday morning our third and final visit to Psalm 8 will be the nature of God. Uh, Each week we remind ourselves that uh, we are becoming disciples, and Disciples really do claim to have solid information relating to fundamental questions. Disciples believe Psalm 8, and so disciples have a sense that they know what the nature of the universe is kind of arrogant to say so, but that's by the very nature of being a disciple. We know what the nature of the universe is. God created, sustained place. We know what the nature of man is. A creature bearing the image of God. We know the nature of God only because he has told us of himself in his word and ultimately in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, It's really kind of astonishing to think about what Christian disciples, just by being disciples, automatically claim to know about life's most fundamental questions and issues. And Psalm 8 is a great poetic summary of the Bible's answer to those questions. What is the nature of the universe? What is the nature of man? What is the nature of God? So let's stand together and we'll read again Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. 
You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are the great I am, the Lord. Yahweh, you are a king and you reign. Let all the peoples, the psalmist says, tremble at the thought of you. You are the one who presences yourself with a particular people. In ancient Israel, seated upon the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Let the earth shake before you in acknowledging how grand and glorious you are. O Lord, you are great, and you are exalted over all the peoples of the earth. Those that know you and acknowledge you to one degree or another, and those who claim no personal knowledge of you at all. We gather together this day to praise your name. For you are great, and you are fearful, and you are holy. You love justice. You establish uprightness in the world. You have placed justice and righteousness among your people. You have done it. Lord, we exalt your name. We bow before you. We bow before the footstool of your feet. For you are holy. Great biblical characters like Moses and Aaron, Samuel. We read of them calling upon your name, and we are those who in our own generation are calling upon your name. And Lord, we have many reasons to call upon your name. Sometimes we are calling upon your name when we are in absolutely desperate need physically, spiritually, emotionally, politically, all around the world this day, there are millions of people out of the seven billion that are on the planet, millions of people find themselves this day in acute crisis. And some of them know where to turn And they are calling upon your name. 
and you are sure to answer them. You have a history of answering us. You answered the ancient Israelites from a pillar of cloud on the mountain. You have taught us to keep your testimonies that you have given to us, and we pray that you'd enable us to do just that. Father, we ask for you to answer those in our own congregation who are calling out to you in the greatest of need, under the greatest of stress. O Lord, our Lord, you are exalted. May we be those who bow before you this day, for you are the holy and everlasting God, our God. We thank you for your presence with us in this hour. Through your word, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Can't be reminded too often when reading the Bible, that's why we mention it all the time, that context is king. Context is king. And our, our focus this morning, the nature of man, occurs in Psalm 8 as it occurs in Genesis chapter 1 in the context of the answer to the question, what's the nature of the universe? In Psalm 8, uh, David places the question very, very starkly. Having just reminded us, and as we noted last week, that the universe is a God-dependent, God-created, God-glorifying place. Remember how Paul put it in Romans eleven thirty-six: For from him and through him and to him are all things, all created reality comes from him, created through him, designed to reflect back on him. It's glory. That's the nature. That's the nature of the world in which men find themselves. Or as David will put it again, just 11 psalms past Psalm 8 and Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it happens every day. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. And Psalm 8 opens, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, as we noted last week, the ESVs, or the NIV is a little more helpful. In the heavens or the Tanakh, sort of spread across the heavens. 
Not so much it's the heavens that you're focusing on and you see the glory of God there. That's the idea. Above in the heavens. Above in the heavens. I suspect we all have had the experience of being out looking at the sky on a clear night. And it inevitably makes you feel small. That's what David is talking about. That's what's going to raise his question about the nature of man. It's from looking at something like that. Wow. Wow. But in the modern era, we, we know that what David has seen is just, frankly, it's, it's just inconceivably large. Inconceivably Grand. It's talked about many times, right? The, the closest star to Earth beyond the sun is a thing called Alpha Centauri. And it's 4.3 light years from here. Now, light years, the speed that light travels in a year, light travels 186,000 miles a second. So uh, if you picture, if you want to picture it in terms of a jet, so a jet would fly around the world seven and three-quarter times in one second. Now, that strikes me as fairly fast. Um, so that's fast. That's fast. And yet, the nearest, the nearest star out of the 200 billion stars in our galaxy, the nearest one, It takes 4.3 years traveling that fast to reach it. Um, That means that the heavens are big. (laughs) Wow, really big. Unimaginably big. And even 3,000 years ago, not knowing those kinds of numbers, this, what David sees when he looks up, strikes him like that. It's verse 3 and 4. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made. And then here's his question. What is man? that you are mindful of him. Given how large the universe is, given how large the universe is, David's question is, could mankind be of any real value or significance at all? How could he be? Because planet Earth is like a speck of dust in our galaxy, let alone the universe. It's like a speck of dust. One small planet revolving around one of those 200 billion stars separated by unimaginable distances, you see. 
David, I think, as one poet to another, would, would understand why, just from a natural point of view, apart from divine revelation, why somebody like uh, one of the singer on uh, progressive rock band Kansas, why he would write Dust in the Wind. Dust in the Wind. All we are is dust in the wind. How could we be anything more than dust in the wind? A few little specks on one little speck in the vast universe that our modern scientists tell us about, that the Hubble telescope is taking pictures of for us. But that's not David's answer. Uh, In fact, David's answer is vastly in the opposite direction. Let's state our thesis for this morning, and this is the thesis, this is David's thesis as to the nature of man in Psalm 8. Uh, Man is created in the image of God and therefore capable of relationship with God. Now, I could have lengthened that out. Uh, Man is created in the image of God and therefore incredibly valuable and capable of relationship with, with God. We start out where we've already covered, so I'll review with just four, four questions, and our first question just deals with the nature of the question itself, the David, David's question. Uh, what is man? What is man? Uh, now, David's answer to that question is vastly different than our society and our culture's prevailing answer. I've mentioned quite a number of times um, the science writer, uh, one of the more gifted writers uh, from the atheist uh, perspective, a guy uh, born in Lincoln, Nebraska, so a Midwesterner, Lauren Isley. Warren Isley. Uh, his essays are collected in the American edition of, of, uh, of literature. Uh, so prominent uh, was he as a nature writer, so a great honor Uh, to him. Um, And in a little essay called The Cosmic Orphan that I've mentioned to you before, here's his answer to the question. So what is man? What is man? And Lauren Isley wrote, uh, he writes it into the second person as he's talking to us. You are a changeling. You are linked by a genetic chain to all the vertebrates. The thing that is you bears the still aching wounds of evolution in body and in brain. Your hands are made over fins. Your lungs come from a creature gasping in a swamp. Your femur has been twisted upright. Your foot is a reworked climbing pad. You are a rag dowel re-sewn from the skin of extinct animals. Long ago, two million years perhaps... You were smaller. Your brain was not so large. We are not confident you could speak 70 million years ago. You were even smaller, climbing creature known as a toupee. You were about the size of a rat. You ate insects. And then ironically he says, and now you fly to the moon. 
Now you fly to the moon. So there's Isley's answer. When I look at the heavens, what is man? And his answer is, well, he is a remarkable evolutionary accident. So remarkable that he eventually figures out how to fly to the moon just by random movement of molecules. Remarkable. And it is remarkable. It would be remarkable. Jesus, on the other hand, and we noticed this last week, Jesus comes along. And um, Jesus would not fit well into the modern green movement. Because Jesus believes in the exaltation of the human race over all of the other created creatures on earth. He does. He makes it plain. He says it in a way that rankles uh, modern sensibilities in our environmentalist culture. Uh, we noted this last week. Remember Matthew ten twenty nine, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. And here's the politically incorrect statement. You are of more value than many sparrows. And by implication, you are of more value than many whales. You are of more value than many dolphins. You are of more value than any of the other creatures. But, he says, but remember, God takes note of sparrows. And Jesus' argument is, therefore, he certainly, certainly takes careful note of somebody like you. Not one sparrow dies apart from God. When I was eight years old, my dad broke horses for a guy at a little farm just outside of Rockford. They had maybe 25, 30 Horses being boarded out there, and people are constantly, you know, looking for somebody. They bought a horse for their daughter. They bought a horse for their son, and they don't really know anything about horses. So then they're looking for somebody that will break the horse and uh, make it so that you can have a kid ride it. Well, you know, my, my dad loved horses, and he knew how to break horses, and he came equipped with kids you know, that you could try out on these various horses, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and be sure if we survive, then their children will probably survive as well. That was, our, that was our strategy. But while he was doing that, I had been given a Daisy BB gun, and I would walk around the edge of the guy's name was Bo, and, um, and I don't know what the Lord thought of it exactly. I, I don't know what I think of it anymore. But I was a ruthless killer of sparrows at age eight. I would find I was hunting down sparrows in and out of the barn. 
And Jesus is saying, a BB never struck a sparrow where God wasn't involved. That's what he's saying. Sparrows die in a lot of ways. That's one way. No sparrow ever falls to the ground. And you are way more valuable than a bunch of sparrows. Now, there's a flip side to how the Bible teaches. It's paradoxical how the Bible teaches us to think about ourselves. And the song we sang together this morning, Who I Am, is a really nice reflection of the other side of that. It's actually sort of a reflection of both sides because it's a salvation reflection. But the, but the refrain, but the refrain in Who I Am is pulled right out of the Psalms and the prophets. It's hard to say exactly where they were thinking and looking, but we'll, we'll put David up for a candidate. Uh, Psalm of David at the other end of the Psalter, Psalm 144, 3 and 4, here's what David says. He asks exactly the same question, but now he, asks, he answers it on the other paradoxical end of the spectrum. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Our answer is, well, he's the creature that God's placed majesty on. He's created in the image of God, as we'll see in a moment. That's not how he answers here. He answers how we sang. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The incredible balance of the Bible. Nothing like men. But they better remain humble because they're a mere breath. They're like a passing shadow. They're none of them here for long. And as we noted at the end last week, and they're all answerable to their creator. So be humble. Be confident in God, but be humble before God. Now then David goes on, and he tells us the answer to two questions. He tells us, number one, what is most significant about man? And then secondly, what is secondarily most significant about him? And we We experience these two things all the time. So what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now here's what's most significant about man. This is how they differ most fundamentally from all of the other creatures in existence. You have made them a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, there's no one like man. You've made him a little less than the other heavenly beings, which is a really judicious translation by the ESV. Uh, Literally, what the Hebrew says is, you have made him a little lower than God. However, when the Septuagint folks came along and translated that Hebrew passage, 
they translated it, you have made him a little lower than the angels. And what tips the scale for Christians is that when the author of Hebrews came along and quoted Psalm 8, he quoted it as the Septuagint translated it. You have made him a little lower than the angels. Then God, then heavenly beings. But the important thing is that we see what, is, what, is, what it's saying is there's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. What we're tempted to think, you see, when we look out, and this is what prompts David's question. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, given the vast size of the universe? And David's answer is, whoa, he's a lot more important than you'd think. There's nobody like him in all of the universe. Man is created a little lower than the angels, which is simply code language for the image of God from Genesis chapter 1. It's an amazing thing, see, David, no, without any question, he's got Genesis 1 in his mind when he writes Psalm 8. And so how does Genesis 1 close? Well, the culmination of the creation of all things is man. Man. Yes, the universe is vast, but the culmination of the creation week is man. And David is reflecting that in this poem. And we are to reflect that in our thinking. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. There's the thing about us, the most important thing about us. Image of God, likeness of God. Let us make man. He closes off, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, David covers all of that in Psalm 8 by, he crowned them with glory and honor. He made them a little lower than Elohim, than the angels, and he crowned them with glory and honor. And honor. There's nobody like them. Nobody else in the universe is crowned and considered like man is. That's the point. That's the point. He made them male and female. And so, as disciples in a culture like ours, it's important. He made them male and female. Oh, no, no. Those are bigoted categories. Oh, no, they're not. Those are creation categories. Those are the categories of reality. Disastrous, blind, foolish to hit up against them. We're hitting up against them. We mean to remove them. Get rid of those categories. Male and female, he created them. That's reality according to disciples. 
that's reality. We increasingly don't fit in this culture, but it's not only reality according to the disciples. It is the only sane and healthy way to think about gender. He made them male and female. Third question. What's the second most significant thing about man? Well, it's verses 6 to 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put him, put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You ever notice this? People, people, lots of people have herds of cattle. No cattle have herds of Swedes and Norwegians. They never have, and they never will. But people have had herds of cattle for millennia. Reflecting this. Reflecting this. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. All beasts of the field. Birds of the heaven. Fish of the air. It's one of the ironies, right, of something like the Green Movement, is that the Green Movement is actually about doing exactly what Genesis says people should and will do. They'll take concern over the rest of the created order. And, and we do. And we have. And it's right that we do. And it's right that we have. And again, David is simply repeating words right out of Genesis, right? Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And it goes on. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Fish pass through the paths of the sea. And we know all about it. Fifty years ago right now, 50 years ago right now, quite depressed. Our parents are moving us out. We're going to live at a place called Thetis Island and going to be going to school on Vancouver Island and had no desire whatsoever to go there to do this thing that my parents had decided to do. I felt it to be an absolute personal disaster. Disaster. And on the way out there, we were going to see somebody in southern Washington, which is what, because my parents knew somebody there, um, so we, were, so we were passing through the Columbia River Valley, and there, my, my dad is an outdoorsman type. Uh, he was. Loved hunting and fishing and those things. Those were the main sports of his life. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. So, you know, we're driving along, and we, we drive past, you know, 500 things that I might have been interested in, but then we stop at the fish hatchery, you know. Well, let's go and see the fish hatchery, you know. So in, in we go, you know, and oh, okay. Uh, you know, that's, oh yeah, fish hatchery, this will be really wonderful. Um, 
Well, as it turns out, of course, I, I remember it because I had no idea, right? So we walk up to one of these tanks, and there, there's like three white sturgeon. Three white sturgeon. Uh, they're the, the, the guy that's telling us they're, they're each about 1,100 pounds, roughly 15 feet long. Whoa, that's a big fish. That's a big fish. Now, the biggest of the white sturgeon, 20 feet long, um, 1,500 pounds, 20 feet long, 1,500 pounds. They are an ugly fish. They are an ugly fish. But, I, you know, I looked. I, I, I looked it up. They've been really, they've been really improving. Man, we have been really improving the sturgeon population out there. They were in a little trouble a number of years ago. They, they, estimated, they estimated in the Columbia River 2015. Think about this. Think of what we know. There's roughly 3,300 white sturgeon, 66 inches long and longer. In, uh, in the Columbia River Basin in 2015. We know that. We know stuff like that. And then some adjustments were made. And so now, 2020, 14,500. People helped that happen. We're overseeing it. Overseeing the fish. Overseeing the waterways, that's, that's us. That's us. Um, and God is mindful of us, and he's placed us in charge of everything like that. That's human beings. Magnificent. Amazing. But in desperate trouble. And that's how we close. So what's man's only hope? I've already mentioned it. The author of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he says this. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified elsewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything subject to him. Think like what? Plenty of diseases and all kinds of stuff like that. Animals kill us while we try to manage them. Diseases kill us while we try to manage them. It's not all perfect in paradise here by quite a ways yet. But we, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. And now he switches over to Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, Jesus becomes one of us. Now there's a hint. 
that human beings are vastly significant. Second person of the triune Godhead becomes one of us. Whoa. Whoa. We see him for a little while who's made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Still quoting the psalm, crowned with glory and honor. And now, right to the Lord's table. Because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he, that is Jesus, my taste death for everyone. He, Jesus, my taste death for everyone. Because of suffering of death, Jesus' death on the cross, by the grace of God, that he might taste death for or in behalf of everyone. And that's not everyone inclusively. That's everyone who meets the conditions of the gospel. Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. The Bible makes that very plain. That's what he means. He tastes death for everyone. Everyone who believes. This is why when Paul invites us, as he does, to the Lord's table, he has that little section where he says, but as you come to the table, let a person examine himself. Examine himself for what? To see whether he is among those who believe. Is he among those who meet the conditions that the Lord has laid aside for you to benefit from what Jesus has done. Uh, I've mentioned many times Calvin's little summary of that is faith and repentance. But even better than that, even better than that, is Ezekiel's summary. Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, where he talks about those who have had their sins washed clean and been given the Spirit who writes the word of God on their heart. He says, let a person examine themselves. Have you pled for forgiveness from Jesus? And is there any evidence in your life that the Lord is writing his words on your heart? Do you have a heart to believe and follow? Say, well, yes, I do, but I'm very, very disappointing, which is why I often pass the Lord's Supper by. Well, you shouldn't pass it by if you are seeking to follow the Lord and find yourself very disappointing. Because we're all very disappointing in our efforts to follow the Lord, all of us. All very disappointing. But if you examine yourself, I do believe in Jesus, and I do know, I do know that I am following him. And my only hope is that he has shed his blood for me, for us, 
then the table's for you. Then the table's for you. Um, with that said, I ask the men who will come who will serve communion this morning. Let me reread those familiar words of Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also have given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Exactly the same preposition Jesus uses, or the author of Hebrews uses, of Jesus. Tasted death for us, in behalf of us. This is my body, the one given for you, in behalf of you. This do for my remembrance. Likewise also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Again, for my remembrance. For as often as you may eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Men would stand to ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you did not spare your own son but delivered him up for us all, all who believe, all who have claimed forgiveness in Jesus, all who have been given your spirit for us. And you promise, will you not also with Jesus, who tasted death for us, Freely give us all things, life, faith, perseverance, everlasting life, resurrection in the new heaven and the new earth, all hinged on the broken body. We thank you for the Lord Jesus in in his name. Amen.